Hello, and welcome to another episode of AgTech So What, brought to you by Tenacious Ventures. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. When people in ag think about fertilizer, nitrogen, or N, is usually the first thing that comes to mind, whether thinking about yields, costs, or environmental impacts. But there is more to crop nutrients than nitrogen. And in terms of vulnerabilities in the global food system, another component, phosphorus, is just as concerning. Phosphorus is a finite resource. 85% of it is located in two countries in the world, Morocco and China. It's a very geopolitically unevenly held material globally. That's Jordan Fazy, founder and CEO of Finite, a company that's building renewable fertilizer mines in a pretty unexpected place. Jordan's interest in phosphorus comes not from a background in agriculture, but from his early career as an engineer in wastewater management in Australia. In my spare time, I got interested in finding ways to make money out of treating waste. And I developed two technologies to mine the fertilizer present in sewage. Once I got into the economics of those processes, I decided to move my work into agriculture because the uh, ag wastewater is more concentrated and the resource recovery opportunity is larger. Where I'm from in Australia, there are not many animal farms. And so, you know, I got on the internet, how do I find animal farmers? I came across a technology competition being run by the US CPA. They'd issued a global call for innovations for new technologies to make value-added products out of manure. And I saw this thing and thought, hey, I've got an idea of how to do this. I'll stick it in and see what happens. The EPA loved it. They said my idea was one of the 10 best ideas in the world. And they gave me an award at the White House in 2016. And the EPA had brought together the biggest pork and dairy producers in the country to be judges in this competition and Smithfield Foods were one of them. So at this ceremony, uh, Smithfield Foods tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, we love what you're doing. Could you come to North Carolina and have a look at our hog farms? And that was it. That's how this all started. That is so insane. What was that like to be in, in the White House and get that tap on the shoulder? Like, how did that feel? It was huge. I knew who these players were coming in, but yeah, my, my first question was, sure, where's North Carolina? But after we figured that out, I jumped on a plane and went down and visited a Spiffield farm. I quickly realized that the technology that I was working on was not the right fit. And once I did some work looking at the sort of need that they were describing and realized, yeah, this is a an opportunity worth solving. There's a real market opportunity here. I threw out the technology I'd been working on and really started digging in deeply with Smithfield to understand what their needs were. And what they really explained to me was that animal farmers really lack access to a low cost, low energy drying system that is able to take the wet manure that's produced on animal farms and dry it into a dry, handleable, transportable product. And so that's what we set out to develop. So give me the one-on-one on how things work now, and maybe let's start with hogs. How do hogs create phosphorus? What happens to that waste currently? How does the system work without finite? Big, big picture, the way hog farms, but also animal farms in general work, confinement farms, is that animals uh, produce manure, which is collected within a manure handling system. And depending on how wet the manure is, and hog farms and dairies tend to produce a liquid manure product, that will be land applied on fields around farms. And the challenge for farmers is that manure is 
not a balanced fertilizer. It has uh, equal quantities approximately of N, P and K, while crops need uh, significantly more nitrogen. And so most nutrient management plans on farms based on the nitrogen needs of crops. And so phosphorus and potassium tends to be applied in excess of crop needs. And that leads up to both a buildup of phosphorus in soils, but also it means that a lot of the value in manure is being essentially wasted. Animal farms in the US produce $5 billion worth of fertilizer every year, and at least half the value of that resource is wasted under current practices. And so what we do is we dry that material into a dry, handleable and transportable product, dry granular product that can then be spread using conventional spreading equipment. We then broker the sale of that material to crop farmers that want this renewable fertilizer product. And then we split the proceeds of sale back with farmers to give them a, a profitable payback on their asset. So just to stay on the kind of current system a, a tiny bit longer, Jordan, you mentioned that in some cases when there are, are cropping farms nearby, the manure gets spread on those farms, but that's potentially an inefficient solution given the nutrient ratios. My understanding is that not all of that manure is used. There's some of it that's not being used or it's not economical to transport it, or we don't have space to manage it. Tell me a little bit more about the challenges with how that manure is being handled today. So North Carolina farms use a, a system called the lagoon spray field system where manure is managed in lagoons and then the excess liquid from the lagoon is irrigated on fields around the lagoon. But what happens is that 90% of the phosphorus in the manure ends up being captured by the lagoon. And so the waste management plans really are only focused on 10% of the phosphorus and actually in reality about 30% of the nitrogen. The rest of it is being stored in the lagoon and these lagoons build up material over time. And the challenge is that farmers haven't planned for where that material goes. And once that farm becomes out of compliance with the amount of sludge material in their lagoon, then they need to clean it out. And in North Carolina, there is a real challenge for finding land for that material to be spread. And so we give farmers an option to uh, dry that material out and make money out of it when actually the sort of alternative costs are prohibitively high for farmers due to the very dense nature of the industry here. And am I correct that the challenge, like right now, the reason that farmers don't just package up the manure and send it off as fertilizer is because the economics don't work given how wet and therefore heavy it is? Is that the gist of it? That's right, yeah. So it is very difficult to remove water from material. Drying is very energy intensive. It takes the same amount of energy to evaporate a ton of water as it does to drive a car 2,000 miles. And if you have to pay for that energy, the cost of handling the material, both the energy cost, but also the labor cost associated with that process just make it uneconomical. And so what we have done as a result of that is we have developed a low cost, low energy drying system coupled with a robotic materials handling system to let us profitably mine and manufacture fertilizer from that material. So paint me a picture of this system and you mentioned robotics and I think IOT as well. Tell me about how does it work? If I'm a hog farmer, do I, am I buying a system? Are you installing it for me? Walk me through the use case. That's right. So the way our 
business works is that farmers will buy our drying system. We subcontract its installation on the farm. The drying system itself is a narrow concrete basin covered by a greenhouse and our robot operates inside that system, mixing the material and assisting it in drying. We mine material from the lagoons that exist on the farm and put it inside the drying system. The drying system is located on the farm. It tends to be too expensive to transport the wet material very far. So we locate these things on the farm, dry the material into a dry handleable product. Then we take it to a central processing facility where we process it and bag it and then sell it as fertilizer. And if I'm a farmer, do I already have a system that you guys are like retrofitting onto in terms of the lagoon I might already have or the waste management system I already have? Or is this a applicable more in a new greenfields situation? No, this is a retrofit to the existing operation. So we mine from the existing lagoon. We don't interfere with the lagoon operation at all. We improve the operation, but the, the mining operation happens on a, a side stream from the actual lagoon itself. I like that you talk about it as a mining operation. So it's a robot that's mining phosphorus. Is that kind of the right way to think about it? That's right. Yeah. So Finite is an agrobotics company that produces renewable fertilizer from manure. We want to turn animal farms into the renewable fertilizer mines of the future. And our technology exists to let us make that happen. Mm. And when you look at the phosphorus space, did you think about other options? There's obviously like biological solutions and kind of other people playing around making innovations in phosphorus. How have you thought about like how finite will fit into a system with potentially different ways of thinking about and managing phosphorus in the future. So phosphorus needs to be replaced on fields every year that the phosphorus in crops is removed from those fields. And so there are definitely biological ways to unlock phosphorus that exists within soils from mineral fertilizer that's been applied in the past. But for soils that are typically fairly low in phosphorus, there is no alternative to bringing in some kind of mineral source from somewhere else. And so the big picture problem here is that phosphorus is a finite resource. 85% of it is located in two countries in the world, Morocco and China. It's a very geopolitically unevenly held material globally. And that's the main reason why fertilizer prices have risen so dramatically in the last two years, both with COVID and the war in Ukraine. But the world's single biggest resource for renewable phosphorus and renewable fertilizer is within the animal farms of the world. American animal farms produce $5 billion worth of fertilizer every year, going into a $20 billion fertilizer market. But in terms of phosphorus, animal manure can supply 40% of America's phosphorus needs. And so this is not the only solution that's necessary to make agriculture sustainable, but it's a really big part and the single biggest resource that's available to us to make agricultural production sustainable. You mentioned the business model a little bit, but just to double click on that. So you sell the robot and the system to hog farmers, but then you also have a revenue share on the fertilizer side. Walk me through the business model in, in a bit more detail. That's right. So we use the environmental pressures that animal farmers are faced with as a driver for adoption for our drying systems. Animal farmers buy, buy the unit. We operate it remotely from it. 
for them. The system is a robot and then we sell the fertilizer material produced by these systems through offtake agreements that we maintain on behalf of farmers. And then we split the proceeds back with them. But one of the really important things to understand about the recycling space or the bio-based fertilizer space is that fertilizer is an enormous industry. American farms consume 20 million tonnes of fertiliser every year. And if you can't make a large volume of material, then fertiliser companies just don't want to touch you. And also the costs of sale are really high for fertiliser products, particularly at small volumes. And so what we do is we aggregate this resource from lots of individual farms where each of those farms would not be able to get over the cost of sale problem and sell the material profitably then we bring that material and sell it centrally through offtake agreements that have a low cost of sale for the product. And that's what makes the whole thing profitable, aside from having profitable unit economics on the manufacturing side. This is a thing that's not really well understood now is that, yeah, selling the material is actually quite challenging as well. Tell me about that side. So who are taking on these offtake agreements and how did it fit into the existing channel? Is it what kinds of cropping farms? Where are they? Is there an agronomist involved or an existing fertilizer company? How does the fertilizer side work? So how we see it working, and we're we're pretty early stage, so there's a lot of learning that's still happening here. But we see our product being a bio-based MAP or DAP replacement. And so we expect there to be an agronomist involved, but the product will be sold by one of the regional fertilizer distributors for a farm. And does it fit into sort of existing equipment? What's the price point compared to what they would otherwise be buying phosphorus at? That's right, yeah. So our product can be spread using existing fertilizer equipment, broadcast applications and in-row applications. The product works well in both cases. At the moment, we are targeting the organic market because we are very supply constrained. But in future, we can make this material for prices that are competitive with synthetic fertilizer. So that's the kind of commercial side. I guess the other one is the environmental side. And you mentioned the organic market. What information do you have on finite greenhouse gas emission profile versus existing conventional fertilizer? Conventional fertilizer has a lot of benefits associated with it, but like conventional fertilizers are made out of natural gas and particularly soluble nitrogen fertilizers lead to a lot of greenhouse gas emissions based on their usage in soils. There's a lot of nitrous oxide emissions both in the soil itself and also from nitrogen fertilizer that runs off fields. Manure-based products and particularly the product that we're making is a slow-release slow release fertilizer product. And so we expect there to be a lot of nutrient use efficiency improvements over conventional fertilizer. Based on the estimates that we've made so far are that our product results in a 65% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions relative to synthetic fertilizer. And how does that work? Tell me about where the system boundary gets drawn for that. Because if you're like in normal phosphorus production, you're talking about a mining operation and then you've got transport and then you've got the actual use on farm. For you guys, you've got the hog farming, the manure process, and then also drying transport application on farm. Is that the apples to apples comparison or how do the system boundaries get drawn? So that's pretty close. Most of the greenhouse gas emission reductions actually come from the nitrogen within our products. Phosphorus itself and phosphorus fertilizers have a pretty low greenhouse gas footprint, at least within manufacturing. Runoff 
from fields and algal blooms are a pretty big part of the greenhouse gas footprint of phosphorus fertilizers, but it's pretty also pretty hard to estimate that. But what we do, there are offsets from preventing farmers from land applying fertilizer upon their fields now. Particularly, there's a lot of diesel that's burnt when farmers are spreading manure. And so farmers don't have to do that anymore. And so there are offsets there. And then we offset the emissions from manufacturing the fertilizer and also the in-field emissions. We haven't looked at transport yet because yeah. it's pretty complicated, but there are pretty good reductions in transport that come from not having to transport this material very far relative to like global supply chains for transport. One of the things that I've been humbled by is the massive economies of scale that exist within fertilizer production. And so just assuming that because you don't have to transport it very far, like that assumption doesn't always stack up that it ends up being greener because your truck transport, particularly if you're doing LTL transport, like it really adds up in terms of emissions. It, you mentioned land applying it. I guess I'm, I just want to make sure I fully understand that. So right now the control case is a hog farm produces waste and then they land apply it near where that hog farm is. And that has both a diesel impact of how it's applied as well as the emissions from how it actually interacts with the soil, et cetera. Then there's the finite case of drying it but it still ends up getting applied on land eventually. How should I think about those two different land applications? Yeah, that, that's right. But the one thing I would say is, so we've considered the diesel fuel that is involved in the control case spreading when you're on farms. We still haven't actually looked at NOx emissions from that practice. And so that's missing from the package at the moment, so to speak. On the finite side, you still would end up applying it. So why is it a lower emissions footprint? Because it's substantially lighter. So we reduce the mass of the material by more than 90%. So the drying technology plus the lower mass once it's applied ends up being less emissions intensive than applying the wet material because of the diesel use required to apply it when it's so heavy. Yeah, that's right. Got it. I guess another question here on the, I guess, impact side maybe would be that the finite solution depends on there being a significant amount of confined animal production. This seems like a kind of target for innovation and disruption right now, whether you believe that it, it should be or shouldn't be, but are you worried that you're building a system that might be reliant on a system that may or may not be around long-term given the kind of social license pressures that it faces? So that's a really good question and one that I grapple with as well. Personally, I think there's no question that Westerners should eat less meat than they do now, but growing protein consumption globally is happening regardless of Western consumption practices specifically. And so I think there will always be a need for these kind of sustainable solutions and these sustainable solutions will be needed more as ESG becomes a bigger thing. So the answer is, I don't know, but like Farmers have a considerable amount invested in the productive assets that exist on their farms. And the United States in particular is the lowest cost producer of particularly pork in the world. And so my take is that even if consumption practices drop, say domestically, that export markets will be found for 
these products because the alternative is financial ruin for a very large part of the agricultural economy. And I just don't think that's going to happen. You mentioned that you're still pretty early stage. Tell me a little bit about the kind of adoption side of things. Any stories about farmers getting excited about using the technology and yeah, kind of where did you start and where is it up to? Yeah, so we've been developing our technology over the last four years. We started in a very different place from where we are now in terms of what our technology is. But a big step for us was having a senior member of the agricultural community here in North Carolina, basically take me under his wing and teach me what it takes to make a technology that farmers would actually buy. It took us three years to get that technology to a point where it was ready to deploy. We deployed it 12 months ago and we haven't looked back. So the last 12 months has been really focused on getting the unit economics understood for our drying process and for the fertilizer manufacturing process. And we have that figured out now. And so we are now just ramping up our production. So we're in the middle of building our next production system. And we signed a contract with a farmer last week to build our third production system. We're full steam ahead. Can you tell me how much it costs? What are you selling a system for? And how much can a farmer expect to get back in fertilizer revenue? So at the moment, for the average size farm in North Carolina, the system will cost about $100,000 to build and generate earnings for the farmer of about $14,000 a year. So here in this market, the way it works is that essentially the fertilizer revenue will pay off the loan repayments that farmers have for the system and they save the very high uh, costs of land applying the material conventionally. So just to walk through that, they're paying hundred grand, but they're getting it financed. And then the 14K of fertilizer income pays for the financing and they also save costs on not having to land apply it. So it works out to be economically beneficial from what year one or year two, something like that. Yeah. The, the payback period is between say one and three years, depending on just how landlocked the farm is. So as a result of the relationships we've built within the pork industry, we have some very big players within the industry that have either invested in the company or become sort of partners helping us with developing the technology. And we have essentially handpicked our investors and also our first customers as a result of that to be the right kind of spokespeople for this new economically attractive way of managing manure. And what challenges do you see in the future? What kind of limitations do you see for your solution? Obviously there's some CapEx cost to, to build it. And in terms of churning out units, it's not quite like software. I can imagine other risks. I don't know if the price of mined phosphorus declines, would people revert back to other uses or is there kind of resistance on the cropping side to a new input or yeah, what limitations do you foresee that you'll have to overcome? The answer is all of the above. What I think will be the most important thing for us to overcome to make our renewable fertilizer products mainstream is building a base of knowledge on the return on investment that farmers receive using the product. There are a lot of potential advantages that really need to be figured out, particularly amongst regenerative farmers. One of the hardest parts of adoption with regenerative farming has been livestock integration within regenerative farmland. Most farms in America are not fenced, which is actually a thing that's really different to Australian farms where, you know, wheat and sheep 
farming is very common. So farmers in America really struggle with how to get livestock and get carbon from manure into soils. And so we see this product as being a way for farmers to get the regenerative benefits of livestock integration without them having to change their farming practices because the product can be used with conventional equipment. They don't need to change anything. And have you started having those conversations? What's the response been? So the answer is, it depends on the farmer. Regenerative farmers, once we show them what we're doing, and particularly when they see the product, they go, wow, I want this right now. Regenerative farmers really understand what we're trying to do and understand the benefits of the product. Conventional farmers are so-so about it and don't see the benefits in the same way. And for all farmers, obviously economics is the most important thing that matters for making a purchasing decision. And so we see cost as being the factor that's going to matter the most. But regenerative farmers really understand the value of the carbon that's present and how that can help them speed up their soil health. Can you share any stories along the way so far, Jordan, of any kind of pivots or missteps, whether that's with the tech or the customers or the business or investors, what have been some of the challenges so far? So we've changed the drying process that we're using. Like we've completely changed our technology, but we did that based on the favorable economics of the process that we're using now. So what I would say, one of the big missteps I would say is that Early on, we pursued grant funding as a way to help farmers adopt our drying systems early on. And ultimately, that funding ended up getting tied up within the uh, state legislature and never became available. And one of the things that I learned through that process was when a farmer has to make a capital investment, just how demotivating the idea of any grant funding could be to them. And it's really changed my attitude to how to run our company. And so the classic sort of expectation that an entrepreneur would have, let's use grant funding as much as we can to get usage out and we'll teach ourselves how to make our systems economical as we go forwards. And I actually think, and I want to say that's wrong, but in our case, that really came back to bite us and has really taught me, no, we are a mining company. mining company needs to have profitable unit economics from day one. If you don't, it's because your technology is not good enough and you need to keep working on getting your technology to be better and to not rely on grants to shore up the difference there. And so that's a, I guess, a counterintuitive learning that I've made that's really made me change the way I run our company. I appreciate you sharing that, Jordan. Thank you. From your perspective, is the fertilizer industry interested in these alternatives or is there some resistance that you're facing or will face? The answer is not yet. And like fertilizer is actually a very difficult industry to operate. The logistics of transporting 20 million tons of material and spreading it ultimately in a very thin layer out across fields across the world is staggering. And so the fertilizer industry has really focused on simplifying the supply chain, using economies of scale as much as possible at every point in the supply chain. And so the reality is that at the moment, we just don't have the scale. Fertilizer is a a massive volume business for you to get into. They're really focused on consistency of material. And so we have a few things that we need to work out before I think I can see big fertilizer companies being interested. But the important counterparty here is that there is nowhere else that this stuff can come from. Phosphorus in particular 
can't be substituted. You can't make it out of anywhere else. And so fertilizer companies will have no choice but to adopt bio-based alternatives just by virtue of the fact that they will not be able to get low-cost mineral resources anymore. I think Europe will be where that starts because Europe has basically no domestic fertilizer or phosphorus resources, or at least very small relative to what is consumed. And so I think that's where the starting point will be. Any comments on scope three pressures and insets and things like that, and whether that will play a role in finite's future? So I think there's no question that as the greenhouse gas footprint of houses and agricultural production becomes priced into the cost of those products, that there will be opportunities for sustainable, renewable products like ours. There's no question about that. We're really focused on getting the economics of our business and our product to stack up without that added benefit. But there's, yeah, there's no question that's important and a great opportunity for us. I continue to see how the emissions credentials of fertilizer will be put under pressure and the that will be a key kind of adoption lever for you guys, I imagine. So figuring out how to tap into that will be, I'm sure, something that continues to be on your mind. I would say that this is, a, I've stuck my foot in, but no more than that so far. And so really, I wanted to get a sense from you about how big is big, how big is not big. It's a little bit of like beauties in the eye of the beholder in some ways. If you come at it from a scope three emissions perspective, like who is worried about those scope three emissions? And if you're a general mills buying from a farmer and part of that farm's emissions profile, it comes from fertilizer. So I want them to use less emissions intensive inputs, then can I help the transition to a lower emission footprint fertilizer and therefore claim that my macaroni and cheese is is net zero or helps me achieve my net zero target, which is pretty different than saying I'm a bacon buyer and I want to sure up the scope three emissions credentials of the hog farm. So I think that's where figuring out where are the pressures the greatest and who's likely to want to account for the emissions reduction gives you probably some clues about where that system boundary gets drawn. It's not exactly apples to apples, right? Because you've got two systems in your case versus just the mining supply chain in the kind of control case for the cropping side. But yeah, we talked before about does the hog industry care about the emissions credentials? And so it's actually bundled into the incentive for buying the system to your initial customers, or is it on the fertilizer side where there's some kind of adoption incentive to switch to the finite product based on the emissions credentials? My sense is the way you've done the analysis, it seems like it's more compelling on the hog farmer side to say we reduce your emissions intensity as a hog farming operation and does your downstream supply chain care about that in some way they, they are doing that on the emissions side now on hog production we don't really change the emissions footprint of the farm that much um my sense is that it is on the cropping side sort of offsetting synthetic use at least right now yeah it's interesting though, because I guess the way you explained it at least was right now, is the hog farmer expending that diesel to spread it or they're just selling the product and the cropping farmer is expending the diesel to spread the manure? No, the hog farmer is, but the greenhouse gas footprint of meat production is mostly in the methane that's produced by the lagoons, not in the manure application. And so the anaerobic digestion, like I, I would say 90% of the emissions come from that. And so they're building digesters now and our system works very well with digesters but you can do ours whether you have a digester or not like the two things are the yin and yang so to speak mm. of the entire like sustainable fertilizer package or sustainable mm. production package 
There are so many more questions to cover when it comes to thinking about scope three emissions and adapting business practices for a more resilient food system. But my conversation with Jordan ended here for now. A few insights really stuck out to me, many of which relate directly to these kinds of questions. First, the idea of not paying to ship water, if at all possible, seems like an obvious one. So dehydrating liquid manure makes sense. But the fact that evaporating a ton of water requires the same energy as driving 2,000 miles puts into perspective why just remove the water is not the easy business proposition that it might sound like. This is revealing in a larger sense as well about the complexity of looking at supply chain emissions. Because it's not just about considering the actual production of a commodity, be it corn or potash, it's also about taking into account all of the resources used to transport and refine it, often at several different stages. There's a lot of complexity here, which also means a lot more room to innovate. Finite is also a really fascinating example of a novel business model. The combination of financing and equipment, creating offtake agreements with hog farmers that allow for the aggregation of large volumes of pea, and then providing a fertilizer solution for cropping seems like a pretty complicated needle to thread. But I also appreciate how Jordan is carefully considering the actual incentives at play in each of these spaces. Hog farmers can worry less about their lagoons and the cost of managing waste. There's a new, less vulnerable raw material stream for the fertilizer industry, and it solves a problem for end users. Finally, I loved what Jordan shared about winning a grant and then never seeing the funds materialize, and what that taught him about building a business that makes profit on every unit. Not only was this a great story, it's also a good reminder, especially in current market conditions, of the importance of the fundamentals. So that's it for another episode of AgTech So What. A huge thanks to our guest, Jordan Fazy of Finite, and of course, thank you for listening. For more information on any of the resources mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, tenacious.ventures. I'm Sarah Nolette. Catch you next time.